Hello, we are the Makers of History, with me, Foz, and Ross. Say hello, Ross. Hello. How you doing, Foz? You're alright. Yeah, I'm good, man. Um, well, sir, I've been like... You remember a while back, and I was talking about, like, drivers in the Czech Republic, and how they just enjoy driving into each other. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, and so it's like been snowy as fuck here, and I had to drive to and from the airport, so that's like four hours on the road. Fucking, just like... Swerving round the piles of bodies and like burning over trucks. Apocalypse. And... <laughs> save yourselves! <laughs> what save oh, yourselves, God. Jack? <laughs> yeah. mm. Don't know. Don't know, you weren't listening. <laughs> you weren't listening to the crows. So, one of these crunchy noises under my car. <laughs> oh, nice headphone then. Yeah. So it was a delightful, delightful experience, and that's why I'm already onto my second beer. No, it's good work, mate. Good fucking work. Well, saying onto your second beer, what are you fucking drinking? I am on this Vianney again because I've been to Lidl, and that's the only acceptable beer that they sell. No, Everything else is like, you know, that Lidl alone brand beer, and it's weird, and you don't touch that. Yeah, it's very like German tasting. Mm. But not a high class. Just not like, in a good way. Yeah. It's like the Carlin of Germany. Yes. Standard. Uh, down <laughs> standard on it. Do you hear that? That little bottle that was good. There. That was good. What have you got there? Uh, on the Glenlivet Caribbean Reserve again that I had the other week. It's, uh, it's nice, a tropical man. twist. It's nice. Well, no, it doesn't. It doesn't really have a tropical twist to be honest. It's darker in colour. It's got a very sweet flavour at the start, but it's very peaty. It's harsh. You know, it makes you look. Ah, my man. You know that heat you got up your trachea. You get so. But yeah, it's, uh, I haven't really eaten much today, so let's see how this goes. <laughs> this is going to get interesting then. Well, that'd be funny. We basically get smashed every one of these. <laughs> we do, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so yeah, that's what I'm drinking, bruv. Um, yeah, I suppose we best talk about like, history and stuff. Like, yeah, let's do that then. So, where do we get to? We did that. Well, we did the Halloween special, didn't we? Obviously, great success. Yep. I had a lot of time doing that, and it. When I listen back to it afterwards, you can tell we're hammered at the end. <laughs> yeah, I don't remember the end of that podcast. I don't really know how it ended. It was a great time, mate. It was a great time. That's what's important, isn't it? <laughs> so on season episode eight now, season two. So we're right towards probably mid to late point of the war, rather. Uh, that's a bit optimistic for where we've got to, to be yeah. honest. <laughs> So last last oh, before time. Before we go anywhere, this was a three episode of wasn't it? We yeah, planned it, was, yeah. it out. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, this is gonna be like a thirty-six episode <laughs> on current trends. <laughs> um so yeah, so last time in the series then we talked about the Battle of France and how Germany kind of against all expectations was able to defeat the French in yeah. a matter of weeks. Yeah. But you do commonly hear that it was a massive stroke of German tactician-ness. Yeah, well, I mean, we I think... Did, I, I, we did cover that last We week. did, we did. But I think our main thing was it was just a Not hell luck. of a lot of luck. Yeah. yeah. A little bit of luck will make it through the night. Oh, this is it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, put yourself in Hitler's shoes. Like, Foz, imagine for a moment that you're a megalomaniac dictator who subjugated Europe. Okay, hang on, let me get in the, the mindset one second. Well, I'm there. I'm there. I'm there. Go. Alright, so you know. Knife! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was I was method acting. That was a Yeah, it was, re- it was really good. It was really good. <laughs> <laughs> Just an Alsatian walking around behind you. You imagine you've like you defeated your main enemy on the continent, you defeated the most powerful nation in Europe. Yeah, I'm doing well. How would you be feeling? Like, yeah. you know, Great. Bring them on. So Hitler's got left. He's defeated the French, which no one had anticipated. But he's still facing the British. So, again, if you think of yourself as being a megalomaniac dictator who's conquered Europe, what do you think you need to defeat the British? Boats. There's a big load of water, unless you're going to make some sort of bridge under heavy fire. Uh, I think boats the only option, any. Yeah. Exactly. So you've got to find a way to get across the channel. Because even if the British Army, like, in 1940, is not exactly very big or well-equipped and it's just lost all of its equipment, 
But it's got You've a huge got fucking knife. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's the whole whole crutch of the situation, isn't it? This little island, yeah, but it's the massive ass fucking knife. Like the wooden exactly. Wooden. Well, it's still the biggest navy in the world at this time. And this is a fundamental problem for Hitler. It's like, and then this is why, you know, earlier when I was comparing it to like the dog chaser, the car that catches it, it's like, okay, you're in a war with the British to defeat the French, fantastic. Now what? Yeah. So, obviously, there's, as you, exactly as you say, he needs a navy. And as we saw in the previous episodes, that had been a big focus for Germany in the run up to the war. This Until they completely navy. fucking switched it up. Until they completely <laughs> just like, what? We're done with that one. Turn off the navy switch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it had had a lot of resources poured into it, a lot of manpower and a lot of tonnage of steel. A lot of tonnage of steel. So we're going to let it back up a little bit to look at how this navy that Hitler had been building, how its war's been going so far. So uh, France is defeated in the June of nineteen forty, June July of nineteen forty. But we're going to wind back a little bit to April. And in the month of April, Hitler decides that he is going to go to war with Denmark and Norway. Now, Norway, there's a good... Yeah, I'm just thinking, yeah, yeah, because this is just before France Mm -hmm. capitulates, isn't it? Yeah, okay. So for Norway, he's re- like Denmark is kind of a secretary, but Norway is the real goal. And the reason why he's doing this is... Iron the- ore, there's some material yes, in there. exactly. So the iron ore comes from Sweden. But Which is only- a huge problem for them because it's <laughs> the stumbling block, isn't it? You know, yeah. So short on resources. Exactly. The whole time, like, iron ore as a bottleneck, because German iron ore is very low quality for the most part. Where Swedish stuff's higher quality, so German industries never developed the need to purify its own iron ore. Because it's more efficient taken from Sweden. But the problem is, there's only one port in Scandinavia which is ice-free through the winter, which is Narvik in Norway. The Swedish ports all ice up, so the metal has to come out through Norway. So, there's obviously the risk that the British will intervene in Norway, seize control of Narvik, and then Germany doesn't have access to iron ore. Hitler is properly fucked if that happens. So he makes a decision in April to secure Norway. The British had also made plans not to intervene in Norway, just the Germans got there first, basically. <laughs> so the plan was just to jump in and set up fortifications in Norway, from our point of view. Yeah, like basically like, welcome to the Allies. You don't have a choice in the matter. Yeah. But it would block off Germany's iron ore supply. But the Germans beat the Allies to the punch... And they launch a naval invasion of Norway. What's that called? So, Operation Sea Lion, by any chance? Uh, no, Sea Lion is the attempt to invade Britain by sea. This is oh. oper- Operation Vessa something something, but I don't know what it means. I will do some wikiing shortly. Um, <laughs> and they split the invasion fleet into six task groups, which have different objectives. Two main important ones we're going to focus on is Group Group One and Group Five, because these guys have the best stories. Group 5, their orders are to seize Oslo, the Norwegian capital. So there's going to be a force, two of Germany's brand new heavy cruisers, the Blücher and the Lutzov, and their various escorting ships, and they're going to sail directly into Oslo to seize control of the capital. Take over the government paralysed country, right? So, Oslo is approached via a a fjord, imaginatively called the Oslo Fjord. Oh, it got crazy. (laughs) And they have to sail up there, and at the end of it is the city. So. The fjords are pretty deep, though, to be fair, mm. aren't they? Yeah, yeah, like if the way a fjord is made, it's like a glacial thing, like yeah, carved yeah. deep in. Uh, so it's, it's like a big body of water. And they go sailing up, they overpower some of the Norwegian garrisons down the, like at the mouth of the fjord. Like, it's, it's kind of complete chaos in Norway. They know an invasion is coming. They don't know if it's going to be the British or the Germans that jump on them. <laughs> they uh, you also like they understand that they have a small, neutral country that can't really protect itself. So they're just trying to be as inoffensive as possible, not yeah. to trigger anyone, not to give anyone a, like a pretext to invade them. Mm-hmm. So it's all a bit chaotic in Norway. There's also quite a strong internal Norwegian Nazi movement who... Okay are a risk to the Norwegian government. Anyway, so Group 5 
sailing up the uh, Oslo Fjord. And kind of the last defensive point is a place called Drawback, Drawback, something like this, Sound, which is kind of the last narrowing point before the city of Oslo in the, in the fjord. And it's defended. There's a fortress built there called the Oscarsborg. So this is a fortress that was built back in the 1840s and the 1850s. What sort of things would they have in it? Or cannons and stuff? Well, so when it was originally built, yes. Like, you know, cannons and earth ramparts and brick. Yeah. We get to the 1890s, so, like, you know, end of the 19th century. Norway and Sweden are facing a bit of fisticuffs, so the Norwegians decide to upgrade the fortress. They get in some German expertise to help. So, <laughs> mind, back in the 1890s, the Germans were literally there building this fortress with them. So they upgrade it with, like, you know, the latest guns of the 1890s. Um... The Austro-Hungarians get involved to help them install some torpedo racks, that sort of thing. So it's upgunned and upgraded with the help of the Germans. Uh, they have some crap cannon, all that sort of thing. But back in the 1890s, and that's kind yeah. of the end of modernisation. So it's like, they're not quite cannon, but it's not cutting-edge technology, yeah. you know. So as I say... Yeah, that's good, that. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, bluff. So immediately before the war, Norway's in this chaotic situation. There's no kind of clear orders to the military what to do. The guy in charge of it is a guy named Colonel Birger Eriksson, who's a 64-year-old bloke, so he's already approaching retirement. But no clear some cool stuff. I mean, I don't think he'd ever actually seen real service, because the only like confrontation Norway had was getting its independence from Sweden, but that was resolved without a shot being fired. Oh, so they probably never went to war then? Probably yeah. never had active service, just purely like, you know, garrison duty and that sort of thing. Okay. So he has no clear orders what to do. And, you know, he's there on the 9th of April and he can see some ships are steaming up the Oslo Fjord. He does not know if they are British or German. He knows that his kind of the general intent of the government is if the Germans invade to fight, if the British invade to basically not fight back yeah so he can see ships coming he has no orders of what to do he doesn't know whose ships they are to make matters worse he has 450 men in his fortress all of them except for the officers had been conscripted on the 2nd of april i.e seven days earlier <laughs> i can see he's going well there should have been a mine like you know naval mine barrier in place like you know floating explosives in the sea this was not there. They were going to put that down a few days later as part of a training exercise. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no offshore defences either. So these ships are barreling down on him, the newest ships of the German Navy, and he's got a decision to make, and he gives the order to fire. The other officers query his order. They say, our standing orders from the government are, if ships approach, that we should give a warning shot before we engage. But... Colonel Eriksson, his logic is, if these ships are here, we are the last fortress before Oslo, they have already pushed their way past the outer defences. They've mm. had their warning shots. And he said, quote, either I will be decorated or I will be court-martialed. Fire. Nice. So Not they open fire. Yeah, fucking badass of a man. Yeah, yeah. So far, and did fuck all and then <clears throat> didn't want anyway. Well, <laughs> the first shot fired from these... You know, antique guns, 50-year-old from the 1890s. First shot hits the heavy cruiser Blücher. It smashes it straight in the magazine. The whole thing goes up in flames. <laughs> That's fucking... You could write that, could you? <laughs> See the first shot. <laughs> so then all the other guns on the fort start off. They start having a gun battle. They get some heavy hits on the Lutzov as well, the second heavy cruiser. The German ships just try to, like, advance forward, and the idea being as they come past, they'll be able to put all of their guns onto, yeah, onto yeah, the fortress. Broadside! Exactly. As they're coming up, so the Blucher's in the lead, ship's on fire, and only after the ship is on fire and they hear German voices shouting, they're like, oh, it's the Germans, not the British. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep forward, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> so as they're coming up, they, you know, they're taking hits from the guns, but the ships are still coming. 
kind of the last line of defense they've got this torpedo battery so like you know, a mounted torpedo launcher on the land again made by austria-hungary a country which hadn't existed for more than 20 years by the time of this battle mm. and again i want to re-emphasize german engineers upgraded this fortress they knew exactly <laughs> where all of the defenses were they hadn't they hadn't test fired the torpedoes for years because they had, didn't have a source of spare parts. So they had the drill, they knew how to do it, but they didn't know if the torpedoes would actually work. So they had three of them loaded, they fired off two as the Blucher passes. First one scores kind of a glancing blow, but the second one hits almost bang onto the magazine. Blows the side of the Blucher open, rolls over and sinks. Well, hang on, so both the big new ships are gone. So one of them sunk by torpedoes, the other one is fucked up by the gunfire. Oh, shit. 750 to 800 Germans are killed or wounded, another thousand are captured, and the Norwegians are kind of rescuing them from their sinking ships. The, like, the other German ships turn tail and run. Do you know how many casualties Norway took in this battle? Oh, it's going to be a ridiculously low amount. I don't know. Zero. No way. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So, what do you think's going to happen, though, sailing a ship that close? That seems quite, quite... What were they expecting? Like, I think, first of all, they expected the Norwegians would just be taken by surprise and not fight back. Oh, okay. And just say, like, oh, look at these huge German ships babbling down. Yeah, yeah, what do yeah. we do? And then... I think if you hit, you don't expect your navy, your brand new navy, to lose to a fort from the 1890s. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh my god. So Group Five ends in disaster in its attempt to take Oslo. What's the other group called? Is it the So we've done Group Five. What's the other group? So yes, yeah, so the subject of Group One. Those guys had the critical mission. So it's two thousand uh, mountain soldiers being carried on 10 destroyers destroyers like you know the escort ships mm-hmm. and they are going to be landed directly at the, the key port of Narvik so the place which the whole mission is about capturing Narvik so they're not even coming in on like transport ships they're going in with on warships to have the fire support immediately on the on the ground so they land the Norwegian defenders are overwhelmed all has gone well until the next day when you know, the sun comes up and the warships of the Royal Navy's home fleet have turned up. Ooh. So ger- the Germans have 10 destroyers. The British have a battleship, HMS Warspy, an aircraft carrier, HMS Furious, plus various escort ships. And in the next three days, every single German ship is sunk. Oh, wow. What happened to the dudes who landed? So a British and French force has landed. They push them out of Narvik. They're pushing them back. The Germans are fleeing towards the Swedish border. What saves them is France is defeated during the invasion of France happening uh, in June of that year. So the the Germans have pushed back all the way and then the British and French have to go home to defend France. Oh, fuck. And that's how Norway falls to the Germans. If, again, if, like, France had been able to hold on, the German forces in Norway would have failed. Yeah. Oh, mate. unfortunate ain't it I was literally pulled out and then they just came back in yeah literally that that's fucking rough ain't it yeah but with all of this so the two big new ships of the German Navy the Gneisnau and the Scharnhorst they're brand new big battle cruisers both of them are torpedoed need to go back for repairs Uh, they've lost the Blucher the Lutzov also needs repairs at the same time, another German heavy cruiser, the Graf Spee, has done this weird, weird adventure. So the Graf Spee goes out into the Atlantic to sink uh, merchant ships. Yeah. Supplying Britain. And it kind of gets chased down to the, to the South Atlantic. And it ends up taking shelter in uh, Argentina, I think, or Uruguay, I forget which, on the River Plate. And basically, the Graf Spee is being chased down by a small group of like British light cruisers, desperately outmatched against the Graf Spee. But the British know that the Germans are reading their messages, so they deliberately give these kind of fake messages about this huge British fleet bearing down on them. The Graf Spee is hiding in a neutral country, so the captain of the Graf Spee is like, shit, I'm going to lose my ship. So he orders it scuttled, i.e. the crew to sink their own ship. 
on a bluff. <laughs> when he finds out, he commits suicide the next day. No. <laughs> so the Germans are down. Three heavy cruisers, two battle cruisers, ten destroyers in three days. The invasion of Norway has cost the Kriegsmarine based its entire strength. Wow. So think of all of those resources, all of that number one priority that they've been for the years in the Liverpool. It's all gone all the Exactly. By the summer, yeah. So by the time France is defeated, German Germany's navy consists of one heavy cruiser, two light cruisers, and four destroyers, and that's it. Facing them is the Royal Navy's home fleet, which contains five battleships, eleven cruisers, and more than thirty destroyers. And the home fleet isn't even the biggest fleet the navy has. The main fleet is in the Mediterranean. Wow. <laughs> What is his plan now, then? How can he fucking have a plan now? So now he's got a couple of options. One of them is to try and do what Germany did in the first... tried to do in the First World War, which is to starve Britain by cutting off its sea trade, right? Britain doesn't feed itself. It has food coming in from its empire and from the United States. So before the war starts, uh, Germany estimates that they need 300 submarines. With... Warships, generally thinking, you have one in action, one in repair, and one like you know transiting. So for to have a hundred ships active in the Atlantic, you need three hundred. Okay. And it's kind of the same logic with like no nuclear uh, submarines today. Like you always need at least four. Yeah. So they estimate they need three hundred boats at least, and they need to sink six hundred thousand tons of shipping every month for one year. If they can achieve that, Britain will starve. So, I mean, there's, like, really, like, again, we're talking about this being, like, a war of, like, you know, statistics and economics. It's like, really, you can plot. If we sink this much, they will yeah. starve. That's quite advanced for the time. You don't think that mm. they'd be contemplating that. This is, like, you know, people talk about industrial war and stuff. World War Two, especially, like, the war of the Western powers versus Germany, it's a war of numbers, machines, and factories. Mm. It's, like, really, statistics and spreadsheets are what win this war. Yeah. So, obviously, a U-boat, much smaller and cheaper to build compared to a battleship, let's say. But the thing is, they're, like, the most advanced technological thing of, the, of naval warfare at the time, right? They need a lot of copper and a lot of rubber. Germany does not have any of these things. Copper has to come from Sweden. And I don't know if you've noticed, but rubber trees, not native to Germany. <laughs> and it's like, you know, synthetic rubber is really in its infancy. And there's actually the Germans, Nazi Germany, that pioneers synthetic rubber okay. because they don't have a source. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's why so many German lubricant companies too. As well, because it all had to be synthesised and it's happening at this time. This is, a, you know, IG Farben and companies like this is what they're doing. It's the still going to there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and also like you know submarines need massive infrastructure they need like in the big you know the u-boat pens the big concrete docks to keep them safe they need all of this infrastructure and there is a risk in fighting the submarine war a lot of those ships you're going to sink if you're going to sink everything that comes to the uk a lot of those ships are going to be american ships mm. and there's a big risk of bringing america into world into the war this is a big part of why america joined the first world war because of Germany sinking their ships. Yeah. Now, there's points during World War II, I'm not going to go massively into the Battle of the Atlantic, but there's points when Germany's U-boat campaign is very successful. So, in the first half of 1940... Uh, sorry, in the second half of 1914 into 1941, after they've defeated France, they have access to all of France's sea coast, and they can start building these massive U-boat pens, and they can get easy access to the Atlantic... They're very successful. And they have another successful period in the first half of 1942 after the United States enters war. But we set the target. 600,000 tonnes of shipping must sink each month. Even at the highest points of their success, they were never able to achieve it. Wow. Even when the Allies you know, were completely unprepared, when the technology favoured the submarine... At the start of the like American involvement, the British and the Americans could not work together. Even when these advantages, they still couldn't get to that target. Like at their best in the first half of 1942, the most successful month for the U-boats, they sank 400,000 tons uh, average over a period of eight months. 
Not long enough, not enough. Yeah. And from 1942, the technology advantage swings hard in the favour of the Allies. Their convoy techniques get better, the the destroyer defence gets better, the air cover gets extended to cover the whole Atlantic. And also, American production capacity is, like, off the chart next level. The Americans could produce a new merchant ship once... It takes one month to build one ship. Yeah. So the number of ships rolling off the dockyards so the Germans can't sink them as quick as the Americans can build them. Again, it's all about the statistics, isn't it? Exactly. So the absolute peak for the German U-boat campaign came in March of 1943. And in that month, 476,000 tonnes of Allied shipping were sunk. Huge number. Obviously, many hundreds of ships sinking, many thousands of lives lost, but it's not 600,000. No. And they would never reach that success again. And in fact, after that high point, it crashes hard. By May of 1943, in one month, the Germans lost 43 U-boats, which is 25% of their total strength at that time, in a single month. Wow. Yeah. That's just like that, sonar as well and radar yeah, exactly, and all that exactly. nonsense comes into play there, only, I suppose. And by now, that'll start getting equipped everywhere. And so I think of any branch of service on the, like the western part of World War Two, the U-boat branch had the single worst rate of death. It's something like 80 to 90% of U-boats submariners died in the war. Yeah. There's that one it's... famous geezer out there who managed, he did like nine missions and survived. Oh, yeah. I can't remember his name, but yeah, I know what you mean. They became like celebrities. Yeah, like, they really were like built afterwards. up by German propaganda. But as much as like obviously there was hardship and lives lost, the U-boat campaign never came close to succeeding. Yeah. Really. So, well, it's like today. <clears throat> the only reason we they're not massively used, but in today are they? submarines, apart from not Trident. That's for a specific role, isn't it? Yeah, that's like a different thing. Like, you know, nuclear submarines, the whole point is just going to hide somewhere until you get told to end the world. Mm. But it's, you know, it's always a game of cat and mouse, like, you know, the technology of attacker and defender kind of in a race. Yeah. But for Germany, like, the U boat investment, maybe it was probably the most sensible thing to do with their navy, but it still didn't pay off. No. So we've ruled out, okay, the German surface fleet, it lasted less than a year of the war and is completely destroyed. The U-boats would be, you know, Hitler's pet project, didn't seriously come close to winning the war. So that leaves air power, you know, the new science of war, what everyone believed was going to be the decisive factor. In the 1930s, the British Prime Minister, uh, I think it was Stanley Baldwin, told the House of Parliament, the bomber will always get through, i.e., there is no defence against bombers. Bombers will be win the war in the future. Cities being bombed from the air, and whoever can do the most bombing will win. So, this is the third angle of approach for Hitler and the Nazis. Mm. And again, we saw it in the pre-war build-up. Like you know, we said the two top priorities are the uh, the navy and the Ju eighty eight bomber program. <clears throat> Folks, want to remind the audience what Ju eighty eight is? It's flappy doodle aeroplane. <laughs> uh, it's a medium range bomber, twin engine. <clears throat> uh, it's got quite an extensive bomb bay, armaments galore. It's got the two fifty cows coming out the back. Big piece of kit, nice, nice yeah. bay, right to it. Thank you. Exactly. So it's like a twin engine, medium bomber, very versatile. Will become one of the most important planes in the German arsenal. This had been their big project going in. So this is a plane that was designed for the purpose of bombing the UK, right? Yeah. And they put that, you know, from day, like you said, from the smart start, it was like... How many did they build in the end when they said it was the focus? Like, they smashed out, like... Was it 400? I can't remember exactly. By the end of World War Two, this would be the second most widely produced bomber aircraft in human history. Yeah, what's the, num- what's the number? It's I think it's about 15,000. Yeah, it's ridiculous. By the end of the war. So, in the summer of in the summer and into the autumn of nineteen forty, Germany would make the attempt to defeat Britain from the air. This is the Battle of Britain, right? <clears throat> so, obviously, you know you have Winston Churchill talking about it, like you know never was so much owed by so many. And 
you know, for the British propaganda, it's always like that Britain was on the edge of defeat in 1940 and the Royal Air Force saved Britain. In reality, as we've seen, Germany was never going to be able to execute a naval invasion. The risk from the air war was also never that serious. So we're going to get into this a bit. So 30% of the Luftwaffe had been destroyed over France uh, in the, during the invasion of the first half mm. of 1940. <clears throat> That's a big number. It's a lot of aircraft, yeah. And... Super beer first. The fundamental yeah okay. <laughs> the fundamental problem for the Luftwaffe is they are not able to achieve air supremacy over England. They can't put the RAF down and keep it down. And there's a couple of factors into why this is. They did have but, more fighters at the start, though, didn't they? Going into it, yes, they did. Yeah. But the problem is to do with range. Like you, like we said earlier on, like in the 1930s, the technology of aircraft moves really quickly. Um, the main fighter of the Luftwaffe, the BF 109, when it's flying from bases in northern France, so you know just around Calais, when it flies over the Channel over England, it has a maximum flight time of 20 minutes. That is not long. No. So they have to, you know, they can only. Exert air control in a best case scenario. If even if they come over, like smash the RF out the sky, it's only twenty minutes, and then they have to turn around and refuel. And obviously, this can't both... get that far in twenty minutes. You can't get that far in twenty minutes. No, no, I'm saying they come over the channel. They have twenty minutes of flight time, and then they run out of fuel. And let's go back. Okay. So it's. The RAF always are going to have a significant advantage. Even if things are going badly, you have to hold out for 20 minutes and then the fighters have to turn around. Yeah, exactly. And obviously this cuts both ways. It's exactly the same when the British are trying to bomb Germany. Well, and what are the bombers the though? Those carrying on their own? They keep going yeah. on their own. Germany experimented with uh, the BF-110, so a twin-engined heavy fighter. But the problem is that the single-engined fighter is much lighter and more nimble and just kind of dance around it and can shoot it down. Yeah. So, the uh, this is the first problem, is that they aren't able to control the sky for long enough. And like it's exactly the same in the other direction. When the Allies are bombing Germany, the Spitfire, the Hurricane, the Typhoon, these planes cannot f- fly over Germany long enough to protect the bomber streams. Yeah. It's only when the Americans introduce the P-51 Mustang, which has the range to go all the way across Germany... And then the Luftwaffe gets removed from the game, basically. Yeah. They're just being destroyed over their own air bases. So, this is one of the problems, is they can't win control of the air and keep it. Like, if they, you, know, you can't fly around with impunity. Even if things are going badly, the fighters can hang back and wait till the German fighters have to leave and then hit the bombers. So, this is one problem. Second problem is uh, that the bombers involved don't do enough damage. So we already mentioned that what the JUAT is, so medium twin-engine bomber. I don't know, and for all... probably carry like <clears throat> two tons of bomb, a ton of bomb, I don't think carry much. That's yeah, probably, so it's, the standard load is 1,900 kilogram. There we go. So 4,000 pounds, two metric ton. If you are willing to go absolutely balls out, like stick bombs on everything that can have a bomb attached, and use rockets to help the plane take off, you can get to 3,000, 4,000. But that's absolute maximum. And, again, it's this, like, grim kind of statistics and logic. It's not enough bombs to drop to do serious damage. Obviously, some cities got fucked up. Like, Coventry is the classic example. Yeah. A city that was devastated. Dresden. But that's a little bit different, and we'll come to why it's different okay. in a minute. I mean, I mean, British cities specifically. Oh, okay. Obviously, we're from Birmingham. Birmingham was heavily bombed. So was London. So it was, you know, many places. But basically, the Germans, apart from Coventry, could not really do the thing of destroying the city from one end to the other. And Coventry is kind of unique because it was a very medieval city, so it burned. Um, but basically, they couldn't hit the cities hard enough to make a difference. And we said JU-88 had been, like, you know, the number one priority. 
It was a tiny, tiny minority of the planes taking part in 1940 because they just could not deliver enough of them quickly enough. The main aircraft the Germans were using were the Dornier DO-17 and the Heinkel HG-111. That's the much bigger plane, HG-111, isn't it? Yeah, it's a converted airliner. Those two planes respectively entered service in 1934 and 1935. They are already kind of getting past their sell-by date. So even Germany's best bomber, the Ju-88, isn't great for this, and they're kind of the main two are much older aircraft. To compare really, it, because they're some really good light aircraft. Yeah, I mean, like with the bombers, basically they never really tried seriously to build a proper strategic bomber. Yeah. And we can compare it to the like the Lancasters, so like the main British bomber later in the war. That had a normal load of six and a half thousand kilograms. So that's to say three Ju-88s. Yeah, in one plane. Yeah, and in like an absolute maximum, if you were willing to modify and change the plane, you could get up to 11,000 kilograms. Wow. So it's like the scale of the what the aircraft were able to do was completely different. And, this and is had a long range. And had a much longer range, four engine aircraft rather than two. Mm-hmm. The British built them in crazy numbers. Um, you know, later in the war, Air raids with 1,000 heavy bombers became normal. Wow. Yeah. Even 1,000 aircraft in one night, each of them carrying 6,500 kilograms, like, what, 6 million kilograms of bomb. That are just scattered everywhere as well. Yeah. So it's like the raids are much bigger, the aircraft much more destructive, which is why German cities could be Dresden. It could be wiped out of existence. Yeah. The Germans weren't able to achieve this. So they were never going to win the uh, strategic war bombing Britain's factories. They couldn't hit them hard enough. Mm. But we could hit theirs hard enough. Eventually, when we got, when yeah. we perfected it. I mean, we're going to come more into the British bombing of German cities later, but we did pay a horrendous price to do this. 50% of Bomber Command's aircrew were killed or captured during the war. Wow. Dangerous job, man. Almost as dangerous as being a fucking submarine, man. I think the main takeaway from this podcast is don't be in the Second World War. Yeah. Back <laughs> out. Specifically, don't be in a submarine. <laughs> or a plane. Or any mode of transport. <laughs> <laughs> and as you alluded to at the start, Germany is out producing Britain at the start of the yeah, battle. it won't be at the end. By the second half of 1940, Britain is outproducing Germany 2 to 1 on aircraft. Which, again, it's not on, you know, our national narrative is like, you know, the few standing alone and that, but we were just smashing aircraft out quicker than the Germans could do it. So, already in the autumn of 1940, Britain is confident enough that it doesn't need to focus aircraft production on fighters. In autumn of 1940, Britain makes a decision that it's going to focus primarily on building four-engine heavy bombers which estimates it will need 4,000 of them to win the war. Wow. So it's... That's to do them 1,000 plane raids, and then yeah. it's not enough one can go, and they can have like a three-day maintenance cycle in it. <laughs> exactly. It's exactly like that. Yeah. But they would just keep... It must take time to load that many tonnes, especially if it's a modified one, that much tonnage of bomb. That must took time to do. Because obviously, you got to be delicate. You, you can't throw them about. <laughs> Bombs. <laughs> you also think of like, you know, the manpower and the man hours. Like, mm. each plane has, each Lancaster, I think, had seven crewmen. And then so, the ground support team. And the ground support, exactly. Which would be like fucking loads. You'd probably look at 20, 30, yeah, 40 yeah. people per plane. Night after night after night. It's tens upon tens, probably hundreds of thousands of mm. people we're talking about. To maintain this, I think it's like again we're going to come to this more. But like when Stalin's complaining that he doesn't have a second front, he had a second front every night in the air over Germany. Mm. You know, seven thousand men—that's a division flying over German cities every night. Yeah. But not only is there Britain's production, so we say four thousand bombers needed. The Americans are edging closer to war. Like President Roosevelt is pretty certain he needs to fight Germany. He has to get his people over the kind of the over the finish line but he accepts reality that America is going to have to fight Germany and in 1940 he asked Congress to give him the capacity to build 50,000 planes in a year 
this is a level of scale of production that Europeans can't even dream of. The so, giant wakes. Exactly. So, I mean, the high point for American production in World War II... Have, have a guess. So we say 50,000 is pie in the sky. How many do you think in their most productive year the Americans built? I reckon they probably did it. They nearly doubled it. 85,000 yeah, planes. It's such a vast country with so much fucking like mineral in the ground. Like the great thing out there, oil, coal, yeah. fucking iron, copper. They've got everything you'd possibly need. And it's although America isn't yet in the war, they they've made very clear which side they're on. Yeah, and, and 19- then one day they go, I'm gonna build these many planes in Congress, so everyone knows about it. Oh, I bet America, uh, Germany was like, Hitler was like, fuck, mate. <laughs> I'm in trouble. Yeah, but I think also Hitler didn't really understand losing. what he'd got into. Yeah. It's already going bad. <laughs> so in 1941, America signs the Lend-Lease Act. So that basically... Time, you slow coaches. <laughs> so the way this would work is America would build planes and basically Britain would uh, borrow them and at the end of the war, they would give them back, and they would pay for what they've lost. Ultimately, they didn't pay for anything. Of well, we didn't pay any of the lend-lease. Not from lend-lease. We paid for, like, loans and stuff, but basically yeah. lend-lease, we gave it back. Or, the, like, the idea was... Off. They wrote off losses, and anything we wanted to keep, we paid for at the end. Oh, nice. That was very nice of them. Yeah, I mean, like, up until lend-lease, like, Britain was paying, um, Churchill is quoted as saying... We'll, we'll pay for them while we can, but after we can't pay for them, you will still build them. <laughs> so literally, they, they drained the UK's cash reserves, but then they just kept going. Yeah, fair play to them. We kept stuck to the deal, innit? It's mad as well, do you not think, how, like, in the historical timeline as well, like, we've been, like, enemies the whole time, and then this short period between, like, obviously World War One as well, like, where... I know it's completely off topic, but where does that relationship change mm. from being enemies to being allies? Because like now, now globally, who is America's biggest ally and who is Britain's biggest ally with each other? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Uh, but yeah. it never used to be like that. There used to be enemies. So I think it comes in in the latter half of the 19th century, and it's because of a couple of things. Basically, in the second half of the 19th century, few things come together. One is America stops the practice of slavery, which... Britain in the 19th century was very strongly opposed to. Um, so this is one big factor. Not ending slavery. Slavery. You said Britain were very opposed to it. Britain uh, opposed to slavery, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, you said they ended slavery and Britain were opposed to it. Oh, sorry, yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's just yeah, saying. Yeah. We were opposed to slavery. Yeah, yeah, yeah sorry. We've been banned so, for quite a long time by then, haven't we? Yeah, exactly. So Britain, like in the 19th century, was very anti-slavery. And there was that, I suppose, there's that, um, like... British classic liberalism. Yeah, so this is sort of time period, is it? Yeah, yeah, this is when we're talking about. So it's like so, an idea of like, obviously, like nineteenth century people were racist as fuck. Oh yeah. But yeah. just because you're racist doesn't mean you believe that you should own people. So British people held that slavery was morally wrong for the oh. most part. Um, also, the Americans stopped trying to conquer Canada, which helps. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, like, basically realisation, like, the Americans have all of this space to expand into, into the West. Britain has its own concerns of India. Um, in the early 20th century, Britain basically made the trade-off that they would no longer station big forces in the Western Hemisphere, in the Caribbean or, or Canada, and they would rely on the Americans to protect our interests for us. Yeah. <clears throat> with our focus being on Germany and Japan. Okay. Um, so that's kind of where it comes in. It's also, like, cultural thing. Supposedly... Um, Otto von Bismarck, like the Prussian Chancellor, was once asked, "What is the most important political fact in the world?" And his answer was that the United States speaks English. Mm. Like culture matters. Yeah. Um, ties of family and kin, which were much stronger then, because it was closer to the time when people were migrating, matter. Yeah, it makes a lot of issue as well, doesn't it? Definitely. You speak that language fluently. Yeah. 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 I mean, obviously, there were, like, cultural clashes between the British and the Americans. Ideologically, they're very different. Obviously, the British are imperialists. The Americans are democratic at this time. Um, towards the end of the war and in the immediate Cold War, like, the US would use its position and its power to 
bring British imperialism to an end. There are obviously these conflicts and disagreements, but the fundamental fact is they're both democracies, they're both liberal, they're both English-speaking. They have clear alignment of interests compared to like Japanese imperialism or Italian fascism or German Nazism mm. or Soviet communism. Um, so even during you know, America being at peace, they're doing this huge build-up of aircraft production. And by 1941, the UK is receiving, on average, 5,000 aircraft every month from the Americans, aside from America's own build-up. 5,000? 5,000 per month. Just uh, So, no, that's over the course of 1941. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, a month? <laughs> it would get to that, though, later. But, like, in 1941, 5,000 aircraft a year. Again, America's industry is coming off of complete peacetime out of nowhere to 5,000 in a month. It's impressive, isn't it? Now, bear in mind, Germany has conquered some countries with impressive aircraft industries. They've conquered the Netherlands, they've conquered mm -hmm. France, they've conquered Czechoslovakia. With all of those occupied and captured countries, how many aircraft do you think Germany got from occupied Europe? Oh. In the same time period we're talking about. Uh, same time period, yeah, let's go for that. So in that one year? In one year, 1941. 1941. It's going to be less, so I'm going to go mm. for 3,000. 78. How's that work? Because they destroyed them all. They just could not get the occupied industry to work for them. And they did a lot to fuck Because they just didn't want to. Because they died, they were like, yeah. oh, fuck you, fuck you. Oh, I've had a fire. Oh, sabotaging <laughs> machines, wouldn't you? There's a lot of sabotage going on. And there's also just the way Germany tried to like finance and arrange this was just designed to fuck everyone up. Throughout the entirety of World War II, Germany got the grand total of 2,500 planes out of occupied France and about 950 from occupied Netherlands. And that was it. They were also doing production in Czechoslovakia. Um, but in that case, it was like producing German designs. Interesting side note. Unfinished BF-109s in Czechoslovakia would be given engines from unfinished Heikel bombers and sold to Israel as their first air defence fighter. Oh, nice. <laughs> it's also like the ME-262 jets would also be built in Czechoslovakia, okay. which is why Prague was being bombed by the Germans. Oh, okay. Uh, by, the, by the Americans, sorry. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know Prague was bombed. To be fair, like, my village that I live in was bombed by the Americans as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Happy village times. So to jump back to what I've kind of alluded to about how Germany ran what it, what it had acquired. Like, at face value, Germany has acquired huge economic value through its successes from, you know, 1938 through to 1940, where they've overrun so much of Europe. Yeah, they've taken what amounted to like 30% of global GDP um, in 1938 values, like by taking all of the New France and Czechoslovakia and Poland and so on. Well, that is a lot. Taken together, Germany's empire was richer than the United States. That makes sense, because a lot of like, at this point, I suppose Western states aren't that developed yet, are they? I mean... The US becomes massively more uh, developed during World War Two. By the yeah. end of World War Two, the US is equating to half of global GDP. Mm -hmm. but that's also because everyone else has been bombed to shit. So yeah. it's, yeah. but um, their economy in in uh, Adam Tooze's book is given as about twenty percent larger than the USA, or thirty percent larger than the entire British Empire taken as a whole. Well, okay. So the resources and the manpower and the expertise and everything was there for like a united Europe, even if it's in like the most fucked up possible way to be a united Europe, um, to economically outcompete. And like the Soviet Union, it's like a fraction of the size mm -hmm. of this. There's also the fact that Germany is acquiring it by defeating these armies on the battlefield, they're acquiring a lot of shit. By defeating France in 1940, Germany acquires 300,000 rifles, 2,000 tanks, and 5,000 artillery pieces, which would be in use. Stuff. It's a lot of shit. Even in 1944, 
half of Germany's artillery would be from captured stocks from 1940 and 1941. Yeah. The largest part of which would be the French artillery. Well, okay. <laughs> so you think about that, do you? Yeah, you mm-hmm. should just think of them all there. They're, they're like, you know, what's the German rifle called? Like the Mauser. Oh, yeah, the Mauser. Like the bolt flare, the bolt action one. Oh, yeah. You think of all what using those or MP5s, is it? The little. MP40. MP40, that's it. A little, little black, you know, it's like a very well known silhouette, isn't it? The MP40. Yeah, it's like a. You know, one of the first guns we made out of purely like stamped metal parts. It's yeah. like very uh, economical to produce. But in reality, they've probably got a hodgepodge of stuff. Yeah, the... like complete random selection of shit. I think their biggest source of trucks was the French Army. That's what I and so they had all of this resource potential, but basically they were so intent on asset stripping what they had available that and they it back to Germany. Yeah, so that fits the ideology as well, doesn't it? So I mean, like over the course of nineteen forty to nineteen forty four, France would lose. A cash value of 7.7 billion Reichsmarks of goods, which is like 2 billion something of US dollars in 1914 money. So it's like the Germans really like stripped it of anything with economic value. France, the Netherlands, and Belgium together would have more than 4,000 like uh, railway locomotives stolen, more than 140,000 wagons. So you remember, like, we talked before, like, you know, in the winter of 1939, the German trains are just, like, barely held together with, like, spit and bubble gum. Yeah. This is solving that problem for them. Yeah, said, I suppose like, they've just stripped everything to feed the army, haven't they? Exactly. Because it's so fucked. You know, we said, like, Germany committed all of its fuel reserves to the attack on France. Now they've captured so much fuel and oil, it actually becomes a problem to store all of it. Mm. Um... And they come up with this brilliant system to make use of the, you know, the defence industrial base in the different occupied countries. So, the way it would work is the uh, military would outsource production, let's say rifles, ammunition, whatever, to uh, a French producer, right? So the exporter then like sends its product to Germany. So the rifles, the shells, whatever, go to Germany. They don't get paid by the German government though. They get paid by the central bank in the occupied country. So let's say you have Lefort's ammunition in France. You deliver your ammunition to Germany. You get paid by the French central bank. The central bank then raises it as like an IOU in Germany and they just add it to their uh, account. Exactly. Exactly, which are never going to get paid. (laughs) So it's basically... Occupied countries like France and Netherlands are paying for the weapons to be used to keep them suppressed. Yeah. And never get paid for this. By the time um, Germany is defeated, they owe France eight and a half billion Reichsmarks mm. of unpaid bills for all the production that France has been doing. Um, they also go through like a wholesale like seizure of uh, assets and companies, all the best... Uh, French industry gets sold off at knockdown prices to German uh, business. And probably the single shittiest thing they do to them is they... Well, actually, no, that would be the genocide. But the second shittiest thing that they do (laughs) is they make them pay for the cost of their own occupation. So they have to pay for the German soldiers that are there to stop them from fighting back. Sounds like something Donald Trump would make you do. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to build a wall and make the French pay for <laughs> And not only do that, but they fucking skim off the top of this as well. The French, the French like occupation government estimates that they are paying 20 million Reichsmarks per day for the German occupation forces. They estimate that the amount they pay is enough to pay for an 18 million man army. They'd just be so overcharged for the number of like German soldiers in France. <laughs> and again, it's like 24, billi- uh, 24 billion Reichsmarks have extracted from France by the end of the war, paying for their own occupation. That's too fair. 
So all of this like asset stripping, it keeps Germany going. It keeps German war machine temporarily going. though. Temporarily, because but then you can't. F- yeah, you can't make anything in that. If they'd not done that and they just set them up to make the, the shit that they wanted to properly, they'd be in a much better situation, wouldn't they? Because that was a short-term game. Exactly. And then factories can't build fuck all because you've stripped everything out of them. But it's like, you know, this and like almost every other counterfactual when you say like, oh, if the Germans did this, they could have won the war. And it always boils down to if the Germans weren't Nazis. Because mm. it's their whole fucking logic of their ideology. Exactly yeah. like you said. The whole logic of who they are and what they believe makes them do dumb shit like this yeah. where they just strategically you know, it's a negative it's like you know you're trying to get wool from a sheep and you do it by ripping its skin off mm. so this weird analogy that's a good analogy and <laughs> it's, it's, good also it's a bit weird but I like weird. Weird. <laughs> that's why I'm not allowed to go to the petting zoo but... <laughs> I'm here to shave your sheep <laughs> And they're also able to steal, like, you know, France's investments in other countries. So France have been investing heavily in uh, mining in Yugoslavia. They've been investing in Romanian oil. And the Germans just steal that shit. Uh, Romania eventually agrees to provide all of its oil exports. And remember, Romania's like the Saudi Arabia of its day. All of its oil exports go to Germany in exchange for protection. So they're not even, like, getting the economic value. But it's like it's very much like a mafia dom protecting you. Like, yeah. no, I saw you got there. Shame something happened to me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I thought they were more involved than that. I didn't realise they were so uncomplicit. Um, they would become like eventually, like Romania. You kind of they would end up doing some horrible, shitty stuff. And there's no reason we should like discount their their you know complicity in the Holocaust and stuff. But. Th- of all of the Axis powers, Romania was in a shitty position. Yeah, they got the Soviet Union one side. You got like the, the yeah. wow, Hungary, which belonged to the Germans on your other side. Oh, this is it. Hungary wants got Bulgaria, to, wants... which is a growing fascist nation as well at the time. Exactly. Hungary will strip off one third of Romania's territory with German help. Yeah. The Soviets would also take a slice out of like Romania's best land. Of all the countries that end up in the Axis, like Romania and Finland are kind of the ones where you can say, okay, I can see how they got to this point. Yeah. Obviously, it doesn't excuse Romanian fascists. It doesn't excuse their role in the murder of their Jewish population, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. But there are reasons why Romania didn't have a lot of choices except to go yeah. along with it. And the countries which did try not to go along with it, like Yugoslavia, came upon a very short... Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I guess we can probably leave it there. So this is how... On that glorious, happy note. Yeah, on that cheerful note. So I mean, what we can say is Britain was never in as much danger as British people like to think that we were. Like yeah. Germany, essentially, in the summer of 1940, at the height of their power, did not have a way of defeating Britain. And all of the options that were available to them, air power, your submarines, a surface fleet, none of these things worked out for the Germans. Probably the submarines came closest, but as we saw, like the statistics were never there. They were never going to starve the British out. Yeah, and it's yeah, shockingly, when you go to war with like the biggest economies in the world, you tend not to have fantastic options to do it. Yeah, it's, the whole se- series we've been saying it, like it's just nothing. They do, and none of the decisions make sense. No. Economically, strategically, but it's all driven by this nut, nutty ideology. Isn't it? Exactly. Everything Germany does can only be understood and interpreted through ideology. So any counterfactual, like if Hitler didn't do this, they'd win. But all of these things rely on Hitler not being a Nazi and the Nazis not being Nazis. Mm. Like everything came through this prism of ideology and belief in, like, you know, Jewish control of the world and all, everything that comes with this ideology. And they couldn't make rational decisions. And it's the fundamental flaw of Nazism's belief system. It's an unrealistic understanding of the world. And therefore, all of your decisions are unrealistic. Because you can't use real data. Yeah. Those wacky Nazis. (laughs) They're so wacky. (laughs) (laughs) That Adolf, what's he up to now? Oh, nice. Awesome, bruv. Yep. Uh, I suppose we'll leave it there then. 
Uh, I suppose you can hit us up on the X. On the X, if that hasn't been shut down because Elon Musk is retweeting anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, which is a interesting direction to go with. Oh, I don't think I haven't even seen that, you know. Yeah, that's... I don't know if Like, all of his advertisers have left because someone, like, posted, like, a... a a racist anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and he was like retweeted it with like you've posted the truth <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure how much longer we're going to be on X to be honest okay. well, uh... it's, it's, it's made me think a lot because remember at the start of this series we talked about like Nazi ideology I remember you saying like you know it's hard to imagine that people would believe this today and obviously this is in the past but really I think like recent events it's clear that this shit's never gone away nah it's there. People still believe it. They put a new mask in the invading now. Like, so we got a war in Europe. we got a war in... Well, there's always a war in Africa. <laughs> you know, let's be honest. <laughs> Venezuela throwing its way so, around, like. You know, Middle East's at war. There's going to be war in South America now. It's fucking spreading, man. In Hoi in Hoi terms, like, uh, you know, world tension fucking sky yeah, high now. It's sky high, man, isn't it? We need to build a wall. You need to get your lend lease on the green. You need to get the 85,000 aircraft. <laughs> <laughs> I would play that now. <laughs> Let's do some of that. <laughs> All right. Catch you later, everyone. Thank you very much. Bye. Hello. I went a bit fucking loud then, didn't I? On the hello. I believe you. Fuck it. We'll edit it out at the end. Hello. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm Fuzz. And I'm Fuzz. I thought that up big time. Jesus Christ.